Good morning, Covenant College. Welcome to chapel. Welcome again uh, to all of our guests this morning. We uh, are glad you're here. It's truly a privilege to introduce our speaker for the 2017 WIC Lectures this morning. The WIC Lecture Series was established at Covenant College a number of years ago by a generous endowment from what, uh, from what was then called the Women in the Church, or WIC, and is now called Women's Ministries in the Church of the Presbyterian Church in America. This endowment provided for an annual lecture series here at Covenant that was charged with the task of building up the church and bolstering an informed lay leadership among both men and women. This lectureship has been a great blessing to the college over the years, enabling us to bring nationally acclaimed speakers to address a wide range of topics and issues. I'm absolutely delighted that this year's WIC lecturer is Dr. Rebecca Kneindyke DeYoung. Dr. DeYoung earned her PhD in philosophy at the University of Notre Dame and is professor of philosophy at Calvin College, where she has served since 1998. Her research focuses on Thomas Aquinas' ethics and the seven capital vices, and she also teaches ethics and history of ancient and medieval philosophy. She has published a number of articles and book chapters on various vices and virtues, such as sloth, gluttony, courage, hope, and despair, and in addition is the author of two very important books on the topic of vices, Glittering Vices, A New Look at the dead, uh, Seven Deadly Sins and Their Remedies, published in 2009, and Vainglory, The Forgotten Vice, 20, uh, published in 2014. I've personally used Glittering Vices as a text in my moral philosophy course, and uh, I must tell you it's been a tremendous blessing. Uh, tremendously beneficial both to me and my students. I highly recommend it. Um, I think as you'll see this morning, Professor DeYoung has much to teach us about the nature of sin and about sanctification. Professor DeYoung and her husband Scott have four children. She is not only a wonderful philosopher and scholar, but most importantly, she's a follower of Jesus Christ and a servant of his church. So please join me in giving a warm Scott's welcome to Professor Rebecca DeYoung. Morning, Covenant College. I've picked up that that's the way that you expect to be addressed, and it's such a pleasure to be with you uh, again. I was here for chapel yesterday and spent some time with some students last night, and I must say it's just been a wonderful conversation so far. So I hope we can continue that for the next day or two. Uh, today I will be talking about the vice of vainglory, which I presume most of you have never heard of. So let's all start from scratch together with this one. The way I'd like to introduce this vice, which is very unfamiliar, is by putting some passages from the Sermon on the Mount in front of you. These are Jesus' words, not even a full chapter apart in the Sermon on the Mount. In the first passage, um, Jesus exhorts us to let our light shine before others that they may see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. In the second passage, just a few verses later, he says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before others to be seen by them. So the question here is, is Jesus giving us contradictory advice? Take that one to your theology class this afternoon. Okay, well, how do we think about the way in which we're supposed to let our good deeds shine and the ways in which we're showing off our good deeds in ways that are unseemly um, that Jesus doesn't appreciate? So. One of the ways that I 
warm my students up to this topic of vainglory is to ask them to paint a contrast between people who have glory, for example, celebrities, the top 10, say, most well-known people in America today, it might look like this list that my students provided for me just a few weeks ago, um, and a second category, namely, who you might count as your own personal hero. That is to say, someone you personally admire, would love to pattern your life after, take as a worthy exemplar of Christ-likeness. Who would go on that list? Would it look like my students' list? The contrast between the two lists, again, brings us into the territory of vainglory. Thinking about who is in the limelight and whose goodness is worth paying attention to. We often give lots of attention to people for flash and dazzle, but not for um, the really good stuff. Vainglory was originally one of the seven capital vices, except that there were really eight or nine of them, which is why um, vainglory was still on that longer list at this point. The key thing here is not to think of the deadly sins or the capital vices as the worst possible things that you could do, but rather a set of vices or patterns of behavior that center our lives around created goods in a way that lead us into patterns of idolatry rather than patterns of uh, faithfulness and faithful obedience to God. So the question is, what good are we putting at the center of our lives when we sell out to vainglory? And how does that warp our whole character around it? Now you'll notice that vainglory is not on the list anymore today. I don't know if, if I gave you a quiz, if you could rattle off all seven deadly sins um, off the top of your head. But certainly, um, with this prompt, you can recognize that um, there's no vainglory on the list. And so what I hope to convince you is that although vainglory is a very unfamiliar word, it's not sort of part of our everyday vocabulary anymore, and it's a forgotten vice, it's fallen off the list, I want to show you and convince you today that not only is it a very familiar phenomenon, it's an especially worrisome vice for Christians. Okay? So first, a couple faces of vainglory, just to sort of familiarize us with what um, excessive glory getting might look like. Once we kind of get a feel for what the vice is about, we'll define it, look at the various forms of the vice, talk about what motivates us to be vainglorious. What are the roots of vainglory? Where does this come from in our character? Why are we tempted by it? And then lastly, I'll turn to remedies or paths of resistance to vainglory. What, what do we do to pattern our life in ways that are vainglory resistant and also celebrative of goodness in the right sorts of ways? So that will be sort of the, the outline of what we're doing together today. So um, Super Bowl halftime show. Anybody watch that? All right. She did a spectacular job. In fact, that's what she does. Spectacle, right? And the, the halftime show was just an exemplary um, example of that, just a, uh, an amazing, sensational show. Also, the drones were so cool. Here's another example from Disney. You probably recognize this face. Um, this guy uses antlers of all, in all of his decorating and is especially good at expectorating. Um, why wouldn't you love him and why wouldn't he be the most popular guy in your local tavern? The uh, 
image management and talent agency is happy to help you become a fashion model. And if you follow the advice of this young woman's mother, you should always shine, never blend. Is that what your fashion is designed to do? I don't want to leave professors off the hook, however, so I always like to put this slide up here. Professors have, you know, sort of the, the, the erudite chin stroking, the gaze off into the distance that makes it look like they're thinking of many, many deep and wonderful wise things. Um, they have lots of letters behind their name. We all know how to play this game in academia too, right? So this isn't just a vice for fashion models and people like Lady Gaga. Um, I think this is a quote every academic should have on the door of their office. Of course, social media is a place where showing ourselves and showing off is sort of encouraged and fostered. Um, but today I want to focus most of all on I think the most worrisome form of vainglory, and that is the form where we're seeking to show off our respectable Christian goodness. See, see me? I'm a faithful Christ follower. See me? I'm, I'm a ministry leader. I'm a prayer warrior. Okay, I like to tell the story of when we first joined the church that we're now a part of, and I had four little children in tow, and they sat me right in the front row, and I thought I was going to die of shame, because of course, like three little boys, and they were all misbehaving, throwing matchbox cars, and I was just completely mortified, because they were blowing my image of a perfectly respectable Christian parent, right? Now we sit in the balcony, so that's all good. All right. <laughs> So whatever form of vainglory I've tapped into, there are different ways of falling prey to this vice, and maybe some of these look familiar to you. So each of the capital vices does, uh, follows this pattern. It takes a created good, something God created, to be um, good and affirmed, and it builds a life around that particular created good instead of around faithfulness to God. So the created good in this case is glory. And you might think, okay, wait, wait, wait a minute, Dr. DeYoung. Glory is something that only God gets, right? We don't do human glory. That sounds like we're taking something away from God. This tradition talks about the word glory, uses it in the following way. It's just meant to designate something beautiful, something good, something worth affirming that happens to be on display. So I might say, oh, did you see the glorious sunset last night? I went to the symphony this weekend, and I heard a glorious performance of Brahms' first piano concerto. Uh, those sorts of uses of glorious track the kind of glory that we're talking about here. Any kind of goodness that's shown and known. I used to have the women's Olympic soccer team on here in their victory celebration, but now I can put the cubbies up. It's just makes me happy looking at this slide. Okay, so what glory, being glory does is it takes a genuinely good thing. Affirmation, appreciation for other people and their goodness, um, those are genuine human goods, right? And what it does is it takes those to extremes. It seeks those kinds of glory for anything at all and makes them all about me. So let's talk about the various forms of vainglory. First of all, we can focus on the thing you're seeking glory for. That's one category of forms of vainglory. We can also seek glory for genuinely good things, but try to focus the glory then all on ourselves without 
thanksgiving due to God. The first form of seeking vainglorious things in that first category is to seek glory for good goods you don't actually have, right? You're telling a fish story about the one that got away. You have cosmetic enhancements for beauty you don't have. Um, you've embellished your college application very tastefully in the common application and likewise with your resume in a few years. Okay, we all know this game, including uh, the professor who's up there making sure that his presentation has the illusion of coherence. I don't know, maybe this chapel talk does too. All right, so there might be cases where you're completely faking having something good and then trying to get attention for that. But you might actually have the good in question, all right? And in those cases, it might be a good that's sort of shallow, right? You have the latest cool manicure or um, cover for your iPhone or flame-decorated monster truck. I put that one up for my 11-year-old. He loves that truck. Um, but you also might have the socially respectable versions, not the shallow versions. You might have a degree from a prestigious university. You might drive a really high-status car. And in the end, how much is all that stuff worth? It's all temporal stuff and it's all passing away. How much of your ego, how much of your sense of self and self-worth is staked on those goods that you have? There's a third form of vainglory I want to talk about, and I kind of made this one up, but I was inspired by St. Augustine in doing so. I call it notorious vainglorious. It's when you get glory for something evil. So this is kind of the, the rebel cool form of glory getting, where you do something so bad that people sort of respect you for it. Oh, did you hear about him? He did this, or whatever, okay? Presumption of novelties is actually a vainglory trick that the tradition talks about, and it really just means having the latest and greatest thing to wow your friends with. Oh, wait the latest and greatest thing to wow your friends with. And I have to keep updating this slide because that's the way our consumer culture works, right? You can never be satisfied with what you have. You always have to have something new. You have to be the one who knows what the obscure rock band on YouTube that no one else has discovered yet is, right? That sort of thing gets you attention. Now, the second form of vainglory is seeking glory all for me, and Augustine, notes that the Roman Empire did this. They had genuinely great achievements, genuinely virtuous activities, but they were engaged in all that great and glorious work for their own glory, for, to make their own name great, to have their name go down in history. And Augustine says, uh-uh-uh, if it's all for you, you've tainted all the goodness that you're putting on display. Unfortunately, you can also do this as a Christian. So you can have genuine virtue, you can have genuine growth and godliness, and then you can undercut the whole project by making it all about you. Hey, did you, did you notice how sanctified I am and how godly my reputation is, maybe compared to those people? So my point here is to try to sort of let us know we're all in the soup together here. Everyone struggles with vainglory, whether you have the secular form of vainglory or the saintly form of vainglory, you're so vain, you probably think this chapel talk is about you, don't you? Thank you. Very good. Why are we, why are we vainglorious? Where is this coming from in us? The tradition really pushes hard on pride as a root of vainglory. So 
thinking you have a glory-worthy self. I have some spectacular goodness. You've got to see this. All right? So the glorious, the, the glory-worthy self being shown off. And they can be genuine achievements. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just uh, how desperate we are to get attention for them. Pride and vainglory often go together. All right? Polar Express, anyone? The know-it-all? And the evil queen in Snow White, she's this unholy trinity between envy, vainglory, and pride. Listen, pride, she wants to be the best. She wants to be the fairest of them all. She wants that superior status. But in vainglory, she needs the mirror to affirm her. She needs the audience. She needs people to recognize that she's the best. And she's envious of Snow White, so she takes out the competition. All three. Sort of an unholy trinity of vices. And if you read Gregory the Great, 6th century pope, you'll recognize that that's a very familiar pattern in human behavior. They had their finger on that one centuries ago. I think there's another root of vainglory, and I want to focus on this one, um, especially for us today. I think fear is a root of vainglory. Not the idea that you have such a glorious self to show off, but rather that you don't have goodness. You're lacking in the kinds of things that would win appreciation and approval from your peers and from your audience. So your vainglorious project is a game of concealment. What can I carefully, selectively project about myself while hiding lots of stuff about the real me that I don't want you to see? All right, so there's a fearful form of vainglory too. This picture from Dove's Campaign for Real Beauty shows the way in which the cosmetic industry preys on our fearful vainglory. This is actually the same woman, and she's been given um, a makeover and then photoshopped a little bit. Look how good she looks, right? My kids and I have this, it's called the grocery store rule. You have to take a shower before you go to the grocery store because you know you're going to meet somebody from church there. Okay? That's fearful vainglory. You have the, like, the church you, and you don't want anybody to see the grocery store you. Okay? So that gap between how we look when we're trying to be respectable in public and then the real us, that's sort of the unvarnished version, um, the cosmetic industry is not um, here to affirm how beautiful you already are. It's here to make you feel completely inadequate and make sure that you buy several billion dollars of their products every year, which we do. For the guys, fourth century locker room talk from St. Augustine, here's his story about fearful vainglory. He says, I was ashamed to be less shameless than my friends when they were telling stories of their sexual exploits from last weekend. In fact, he would make up stories pretending he did things he didn't do in order not to appear contemptible. Sound familiar? It's fearful vainglory. Now what's the problem with the vainglory game? The problem is, it's a losing game. It's a game you can't win. What we really long for in vainglory or for in our glory seeking is to be genuinely affirmed by others, to be genuinely loved because we're genuinely known. Right? Now, you know you can receive that kind of um, affirmation from God, but people are a little more unreliable, and this puts us on edge. Right? We feel like we have to be careful. We're afraid people won't affirm us, so we project an image, we manage that image, we maintain that image, 
to make sure that the acceptable us shows on the outside and the real us is concealed behind a mask, a social media uh, persona, a superhero costume, right? I know that when I had small children, I went to work every day with my superhero costume on, all right? It's like, all right, I'm falling apart at the seams, I'm sleep deprived, I have spit up on my shoulder, but I'm gonna stand up in front of class with my suit jacket on and pretend I remember what I'm supposed to be talking about in class today. I got my, I've got my, my costume on and I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it through this, right? So Vainglory puts out that mask and it gets a lot of affirmation for the mask. But what you're really seeking affirmation for is the real you behind the mask. And if all you've done is project the mask, you're missing out on the thing your heart's really hungry for, which is to be known and loved just the way you really are. We long for, we hunger for genuine communion with others, warts and all, wrinkles and all, the unvarnished version, all right? So that longing won't be met if the self that we're projecting and the image we're managing is a faked version of who we really are. What in the world are you gonna do about vainglory? It's a problem for every single one of us in this room, is it not? What are you gonna do about it? The tradition doesn't leave you sort of wallowing <laughs> in sin and difficulty here. It says there are practices of resistance to vainglory. And I wanna divide those into of two categories. One, how do you push back against patterns of vainglory that sort of encroach on us um, from our natural sinful, our nature, and also from the culture? How do we push back? How do we detach from unhealthy practices? And how do we move forward into godly practices? So I'll deal with both of those in the rest of the talk today. Well, let's look at a story from one of the Desert Fathers from the fourth century AD named Abba Macarius the Egyptian. And he gave a young monk some very peculiar advice on how to resist vainglory. He said this, go to the cemetery and abuse the dead. It's just like the pastoral advice you received last week from the chaplain, right? So the young monk is completely baffled, but hey, it's Abba Macarius, so you better do what he says. So he went to the cemetery and he rained down some curses on all the dead people buried in the cemetery. And he said to Abba Macarius, Abba, I have, I've cursed them. And Abba Macarius says, what did they say to you? And the monk said, nothing, they're dead. And Abba Macarius says, all right, go back and praise them. So the young monk goes back to the cemetery and this time it's benedictions and blessings all around, shouting out compliments to all the same dead people still buried there. And he comes back to Abba Macarius and he says, this time I've praised them. And Abba Macarius says, and this time, what did they say to you? And the young monk said, nothing, they're still dead. And Abba Macarius says, young man, so you too must become like the dead, deaf to both the scorn and the praises of men. It's a practice of detachment that he's counseling. You can be overly sensitive to criticism. You can be overly um, needy for praise. And in both of those places, what you're showing is that you're overly attached to affirmation from other people. 
Are you listening to God's voice and God's call and God's affirmation and living out of that fullness? Or are you trying to find a sham substitute in the affirmation of others? So the tradition offers us spiritual practices like solitude, which takes away your audience and your need to perform, your need to stay in a role, your need to keep the mask up. It gives us practices like silence, where we take away one of the primary tools we use to maintain our image, and that's our conversation about ourselves. Oh, no, no, that's not what I meant. Let me tell you what really happened. Right? It's, it's image management, even in our excuse making and our rationalization. We are trying to make sure that you know that we're really the good person and not the bad person in the story. So with my own students, I practiced a week of silence. And we really struggled with this one. It was a lot harder than we thought we uh, would struggle with it. And in fact, by the end of the week, what they said to me is, um, I'm not sure I could do another week of this. It was too hard. But after a week of practice, they also said to me, you know what I learned in this exercise? I've learned to listen. And I've learned how hard listening is. I've learned how hard it is to receive another person and what they're offering to me. I'm so used to pushing my own agenda, pushing my own image, pushing my own sort of self-aggrandizement project, that I'm not good at receiving from others. But this was an exercise not only in detaching from excessive self-talk, obviously there's good self-talk too, but we were way over the edge on excess, and living into a kind of receptivity and exchange in conversation that facilitates real communion. Um, with each other. Now, St. Augustine has some really good advice about what to do about vainglory. And here's what he says. Yes, you have goodness from God, but here's how to think about that goodness, and here's how to think about how to share that goodness. God gives us these good things as gifts, and he gives them to us so that we can be the waiter. That is to say, so you can serve it up to others, right? The point of having the goodness and having the gift is to share the gift. All of your gifts are common goods. Isn't that an interesting way to think about it? So then when someone praises you for the goods that you have, you look down at the tray and say, well, this bread isn't my bread. This is, this is bread from the storms of the Lord. And in fact, it's the very bread I've nourished on myself. Augustine also um, tells us that we can be a good audience for others. Um, and that's important for receiving glory well. Think about the way that we respond in worship to things that are glorious. I mean, typically we clap, don't we? But that looks a lot like what you would do at a rock concert when you're sort of doing sensational celebration and hype. How do our worship practices look like the world's practices? How should we conform? How should we transform those practices? When I do prison ministry down in Louisiana, here's what they do. They shout out, hallelujah, preach it, right? Which is very different than clapping. It says something different. Hallelujah says, I'm praising God for what I'm hearing. Preach it says, keep the good word of the Lord coming. It's enriching me. So how can our practices reflect good glory giving um, and not just um, the kind of applause that we see in the world? I'm going to skip this story. 
and get to the last story so I can get you out on, on time today. This is another story from the Desert Fathers. Abelak goes to Abba Joseph and says to him, My father, I pray a little, I meditate a little, I live in peace as far as I can, I purify my thoughts. What else can I do? And the old man stood up and stretched his hands toward heaven, and his fingers became like ten lamps of fire. And he said to him, If you can, if you will, you can be all things. Let your light shine. Will you join me in prayer, please? Our Father and our God, you are the giver of every good and perfect gift. We give you thanks and praise for the goodness that you have shared with us. Help us to celebrate, encourage, and affirm those gifts and that goodness in ourselves and in others. And Lord, help us to shine for you in ways that give glory to you and bless the world around us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Go in peace. Please stand.